Clockwise is brought to you by Boom 2 by Global Delight. Boom 2 is a pro audio app from the Mac that offers a system-wide volume booster, advanced equalizer control and presets, amazing audio effects, and much more. This app was built from scratch and is designed for Yosemite. Boom 2 is tailored to calibrate itself to suit your Mac because no two Macs are the same. Louder, clearer, and better with personalized and customized sound to suit any occasion. It gives you the power to fine-tune and control every single element of audio coming out of your Mac from Spotify to Netflix, from YouTube to iTunes. It's all about to sound a whole lot better. The first version of Boom was a Macworld Best of Show winner. You can try Boom 2 free for seven days. And if you'd like to buy it, get 20% off using coupon code CLOCKWISE. This coupon valid throughout December to download your free trial or to buy. Go to bit.ly.com slash clockwise boom. It's time for episode 66 of the Clockwise podcast from Relay FM, recorded Wednesday, December 10, 2014. Clockwise, four guests, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, a podcast that gets its kicks above the waistline. Sunshine, that's a that's a One Night in Bangkok reference. Look it up, it's from the 80s. I'm your co-host Jason Snell, and across the internet from me, my co-host as always, Dan Warren. Hello. Hi, Jason. I am not clear at all on what you just said. Anyway, this is actually Clockwise. We talk about four tech topics for 30 minutes with two lovely guests. And we do have two lovely guests today. Uh, to my left is my co-host for the Upgrade podcast and one of the founders of Relay FM. So he's sort of the boss here. Today, he's not the boss because he's on our show. It's Mike Hurley. Hi, Mike. You're not the boss of me. Ahoy. Wait, no, I got that wrong, didn't I? No. I, I'm I, the boss of you. I feel like Mike and I need to have a co-host throwdown. Yeah. <laughs> he loves me more than you. No, it's not true. <laughs> and to my left is iMore's own Georgia Dow, another a returning guest on the show. No. Welcome back, Georgia. I know. I'm so excited that you actually like had me back after last one. So that's that's amazing. This is uh, Clockwise. So again, 30 minutes, four topics, four guests. Uh, since I kicked off the show with my obscure reference from One Night in Bangkok, I will go first. Uh, it's not about ABBA, so you guys are in the clear. Um, Apple's app rejections are back in the news. We heard a lot of uh, conversation this week again about apps being told, hey, that really cool feature that we added in iOS 8 that you added to your app, take it out. <laughs> And developers are like, what do we even do? And so we're back at one of those moments where developers are kind of up in arms. Apple is being unclear. And so I wanted to ask all of you, why do you think this is happening? And is there anything that can be done uh, to, to make it stop? Oh, please make it stop. And we'll start with Mike. What do you think? Well, I, at first, I thought it was it was interesting looking at the the topic document today, Jason. You clearly got in first because I think this was the topic everybody wanted to pick because um, it is the the hot button right now. Um, I think the reason the reason that this is happening is clear. Tim Cook can can say for as much as Tim Cook would love to say, and we would love him to hear that his company is now joined up. In a company of Apple's size, in any company of Apple's size, there is no such thing as business units all being completely joined up. And clearly what is happening is that there are different business units that have different priorities and or lacking in training or just general communication. So the app review team and the app editorial team and the teams that work on the SDKs and everything like that, they're just not talking from, they're not singing from the same hymn book. And what's happening now is everybody now is starting to see the ramifications of that. 
and we're seeing a lot of our favorite apps rejected. And the problem at the moment is usually these things happen like they are few and far between. You know, we'll get these these notable app rejections and then things are sorted out or forgotten about. But unfortunately, we're having like a whole string of them right now. So it's it's completely front of mind. Yeah, I think I think Mike put that very succinctly that there is a disconnect going on here. Um, and especially I think we're seeing it right now because of the fact that iOS 8 rolled out and now we're seeing the developers take advantage of all those new features. And someone up the ladder was going, wait, wait what features did we allow? We're, we're letting them do this thing? No, no, we're not letting them do that thing. Uh, as for what they can do to fix it, I think the, the biggest step, and I think George's colleague, Renee Ritchie, suggested this, was having some sort of public-facing member of the executive team or even you know a slightly lower-ranked person who is sort of an app store czar. Um, alternatively, I suggested on this week's episode of The Rebound, my other podcast, that they should, hi- they should have a why guy. That, that would be my goal, my, my best, my dream job at Apple, the why guy. You just walk into a room and you're like, guys, why? Why? Why are you making such a big deal out of this? <laughs> he has one job. One that is job. the only job. But I think I think that's what it is. They're, they need someone who is sort of advocating, you know, not quite an ombudsman, but someone who advocates from the point of view of the users. Like, guys, take a step back. Like, why are we making such a big fuss about this? Because I think, you know, they clearly have a vision and they clearly want to stick to like, this is Apple's way of doing things. I don't think it's intended to be malicious. I think it's Apple thinks it knows best about everything. But I think that's not always the case, clearly. And they don't really take a step back and try to remember what it's like to be a user and think, oh, hey, these are really cool features. They just think about, okay, this violates like our philosophy or whatever we're going for. So I think they need someone who is sort of a point person on that. And I think it should be a public facing position, which may be very difficult for them to hear because they don't like doing that. Yeah, I think that uh, on Vector, Christina Warren made a great point because I had said, like, why does why does Apple have to care so much and be so restrictive? And she said that in the end, when something does not work on your phone, many people don't blame the application, but they they blame the phone, they blame the OS. And so I, th- I can understand why Apple has such a controlling, restrictive process on what runs and what doesn't, because they want to control the user experience. My greatest worry is that these restrictive policies are going to be detrimental to the small app developers and that motivation to innovate and try things new, because trying things new increases the chances that they might get their app rejected or just thrown out or piece gets rejected to it. So I think having clearer rules and understanding about how things work and having a really open policy of why they're doing things and how, I think that that would be helpful. Though I like the idea of a czar. Who doesn't like a czar? It's just a great title. Who doesn't like a czar? Except for the communists who apparently are not big fans of the czars. (laughs) I read an interesting thing by Ben Thompson from Stratechery today, but it was in his private newsletter, so nobody else gets to read it except the people who paid him. (laughs) But, um, you know, he he said he thinks this is uh, potentially a sign of of inner turmoil at Apple and that you you look around and you see that uh, Apple has changed a lot since uh, Tim Cook took over and who's in he, basically what he said is who's in charge of the various groups you know you, you've got Craig Federighi running the software group and uh, they built all these great features and you've got uh, Eddie Q in the iTunes group writing all of these promotional things saying here's some great apps and then you've got App Review which is apparently under Phil Schiller and they're saying don't do this and his theory and I have no idea if it's accurate or not but 
but it, it would be fascinating if it's true, is that this is a sign of uh, kind of the old controlling Apple saying, we're just absolutely not going to do this, um, taking over and basically overriding the other parts of Apple because you guys can build all the features you like and promote them all you like, but if we kick them out of the store, they're not, you know, we have the last word. We're going to kick them out of the store. And clearly, whether that's it or it's something else, Apple doesn't have its act together. So whether it's the Y guy or something similar to that, I think this is I think this is something that has to change. That that uh, we're we're seeing it does very much feel like it's kind of old Apple and new Apple um, in conflict, and how they resolve it, I I don't know. I I I feel like you know Apple. If Apple doesn't have somebody who's saying, you know, here's how we're going to, you know, roll these features out to developers and 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 promote them to everybody, then something is really wrong. And if they do have that person and they're not being listened to and they don't have their act together, then that's really unprofessional. So something's got to change. Obviously, I think developers can't do it and the press can't do it. We can call attention to it, but this is a Apple's going to have to want to change. So we'll see if they do. That's my topic. Thank you for sharing. Mike, it's your turn. What do you have for us? So uh, this week, uh, PlayStation is 20 years old and Sony has been doing a bunch of different events and they're really ramping up the press coverage and talking about like 20 years of play is their their kind of tagline for a lot of this sort of stuff. They have a 20th anniversary special PlayStation that's limited in units and is already going for like $20,000 on eBay. So I wanted to know from the other panelists today, what is your earliest video game memory? That's a good question. I think that the earliest ones I really have a strong memory of was the first video game system I ever had, which was an original Nintendo. I never would have had an original Nintendo except for the fact that, the fact that my dad actually won it at like a raffle at the supermarket. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so wow. I ended up with a Super Nintendo or an original Nintendo, a handful of games, and like a couple of these really big NES Advantage, like joystick style controllers. Um, and I remember trying to play video games with my dad. And spoiler, my dad is terrible <laughs> at video games. The only one I could even get him to play was like a racing game called RC Pro Am, um, which is a really hard game, by the way, because it has this weird isometric like view, and it's not particularly good for a racing game. But that is kind of the state of the art on eight bit machines at that point um if there's anything before that i feel like maybe playing some games on like one of my friends original mac or a text there was a text-based adventure i used to play on my friend's pc when i was in like first or second grade that was basically a star wars ripoff where you had to go in to this space station and rescue a princess with a vorpal blade um it was all text-based that that is probably one of my earliest ones but yeah it was Definitely. I I started playing video games at a pretty young age, and it is amazing to see how far they have come in that time. (laughs) For me, my first one was actually an Atari, uh, first-gen Atari, because my brother was much older than me, and he had bought one. And so my favorite game was called Adventure. You were a square, literally a square. And you would go through this maze, and there there was no plot. There were no... (laughs) No, gra- almost no graphics, and there really wasn't storyline. And you had to go through these mazes and castles and save the. No, there wasn't even a princess. No, you, you just had to unlocked find keys. the castles. You, had to you find found keys the three keys and avoid unlocked the, the three. Yes, you played this game. Oh, sure, absolutely. Yes, played it. Yeah, Adventures, I, classic. I loved this game. I think I've played it like a hundred times. I, I think I could probably still beat it in like under five minutes flat. I loved this game, and that was my first memory. And I loved video games from that moment forward. That, that's. 
I I must have seen I must have seen like at a video arcade uh, or something um, or at my local the the like the pizza place that we went my like peewee baseball team went after a game we, there must have been a console there an early console like a Pong or a Space Invaders or something like that but the the one that the, my indelible memory is yeah the Atari twenty six hundred which is the 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 first like wildly successful home video game console and I remember playing Adventure and Ooh. Combat which came oh, with yeah. it. Which was like you fly mm-hmm. planes or there were tanks <laughs> and stuff like that. Oh yeah, and then it was great. And then uh, just I, I can't even imagine all of the Atari cartridges that I ended up with. But that was the that was that moment that I, I just I remember wanting that more than any other thing Christmas present I ever wanted in my entire life. Which is why that uh, Jonathan Colton song Twenty Six Hundred resonates for me. It's like yep, that was I was that kid. So way in the old way back. But I'm sure I saw a video game before then. Why would I otherwise have wanted the Atari Twenty Six Hundred? But it, it was some old weird. It was probably like asteroids, some console with asteroids in it or something before that. But I, I don't, I can't pinpoint that. So all of my uh, early video game memories revolve around the original NES. Um, there were many uh, instances where my older brother would be playing, and I would either be given a controller and told that I was playing along with him, <laughs> even if I wasn't, uh, <laughs> and or having to fight him to play and then die really quickly and get the controller back. And two, obviously Mario was a was a game that you know everybody remembers, but two really notable games that I vividly remember was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. Yes, yes, and. The Simpsons Bart versus the Space Mutants, which was such a good game, <laughs> horribly hard. Like we never got past a certain level. I think it was the crusty level. There was something something you could like a theme park or a circus, a crusty circus. We could never get past that level. Uh, and I also really, really remember the TV ad for that game. Uh, yeah, really fun and horribly difficult games was that was that the terrible tmt the teenage mutant intro game or the more arcade style one because i had the arcade style one that was like a side scroller but there was also like a top down one that was the very much oh this is terrible game i've never seen that that game game, like that i know it is the top down one but it was kind of some parts of it were top down and some parts of it was side scrolling it was very peculiar to drive like a van around for parts of it Yep. Yeah, yep. that was. Yep. I played at and my friend's you, house. That was great. Then you go in the sewers, and it was yep. yeah. The the, the arcade size growing one was much better. Yeah, I got. I had that one because that was. A, it was basically based on the arcade cabinet, which I had played a bunch. Mm-hmm. It was like that game is awesome. It was not as good on the NES, but it was still pretty good. So uh, one of the pieces of news from from my topic, one of the things I saw this week was that uh, a there was a video of a early release ver- or a pre release version of Windows Ten, a very early build that showed off Cortana running on the desktop. Uh, now, obviously, it's so early build that it was really kind of, uh, it didn't really work very well. Um, my favorite bit was where it's it tries to retrieve directions to this is not working, as Cortana reports. Um, <laughs> a little rough, but you know, we'll, we'll give them some slack there. But this made me surprised to a certain extent because obviously Apple's had Siri on the iPhone for many years now, and we have not seen Siri jump to the Mac, though we have seen the dictation feature that is on the iOS come to the Mac. Um, And I'm kind of curious what you guys think, you know, whether Siri will make the jump to the Mac, whether you think there are things that that are compelling for it to do on the Mac, or whether you're like, nope, I just need this on my phone. I don't even even want it on my Mac. Georgia, what do you think? Well, my first thing is Windows, where's Windows 9? But anyways, I'll I'll go back from my numbers (laughs) eliteness and grab my pitchforks for later. You can ask Cortana that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> and my thought is, I don't know, I, I'm thinking, why can't I have Siri not be able to find Rich, Rene Ritchie on my laptop just like it can't find him <laughs> on my iPhone? <laughs> like wondering why this happens. I, I actually don't use Siri a lot even on my phone. It, it would only be if ultimately necessary to make a phone call while I'm driving. Besides that, I don't think that I would actually use it on my Mac, and I would hope that they're going to work out the bugs in Siri first before um, it actually goes on to my Mac as well, because I find it a very frustrating experience whenever it does not work. And most often, unless I am cooking, I, I'm able to actually be in close proximity to my Mac to be able to use it. And if I have to hit a button, I might as well just type the question out for myself. So for me, make it work and then bring it down. Yeah, I don't use Siri a lot either. And I, I use it to set timers. I, I don't, I, I think it's a good question why it wouldn't be on the Mac though. I mean, if you were convinced that Siri is useful, why would you not bring it uh, to the Mac in some way? Because if it's useful on the on the phone, would it not be useful? Would you know? Are there not moments? That might we, be the question though, we've right? Got, we've got dictation now. On on the Mac, uh, which is a nice iOS voice feature, but uh, yeah, it would be wouldn't it be convenient to be able to say "Ahoy, telephone"? Or sorry, we'd have to change it, Mike. <laughs> "Ahoy, computer," and then tell it to do something. I think yeah, I think that would be um, I think that would be valuable. So I, 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 they must just feel like either they feel like it's really a mobile device feature, which uh, then you know, the iPad isn't it doesn't seem a lot as necessary on the iPad as it does on the iPhone, or there's just this interface problem that like Siri can take over your screen and talk to you, and what what does it do on the Mac, and how do you implement that? And maybe it just hasn't been a priority because they've tried it and they think it's just not good enough. Although you know, not to be catty, but you know they didn't say that about it on the iPhone, so. Why would they say that on the Mac? I don't really care for Siri in general. Uh, so it, does, it doesn't bother me if it comes to the Mac or not. Like the only thing that I ever use Siri for is to set a timer just because it's the quickest way to do it. Uh, and it's unlikely I would need to set timers on my Mac. I don't tend to have my Mac when I'm cooking or making mm-hmm. coffee or something in the morning. So like I, I don't know what I would use Siri for that would be quicker on the Mac than for me to just maybe just go to Google or use Alfred or something like that. Um, Alfred is my actual butler, not not the app. Uh, uh, so yeah, we all have them in the UK. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, I'm moving. So I do, yeah, I'm so I have, jealous. I have no idea. So I have no idea what I'd use it for. Goes with the bat cave. Mm-hmm. So the the thing that interests me about the potential for Siri on the desktop is that it's not bound by so many of the limitations that the smartphone implementation is. For example, I really like the, oh boy, telephone feature. You got me doing it because I can't say the other thing. Uh, I like that feature a lot, but it's depending on the phone being plugged in. Your computer is largely, if not always, plugged in, uh, which means I'm really interested in this idea of sort of an ambient computing interface where it's, I don't have to be standing at my computer, but I can say, you know, if I'm in the the room or even in the room next door, I can sort of, and I think of something, I can ask my computer, it can respond. Of course, all that's predicated on Siri being much more intelligent, as George is saying, and working out some of the bugs. But I think that there's a lot of potential for it in the desktop. And let's also keep in mind that no matter how powerful smartphones have gotten, and that's pretty powerful, desktops can bring to bear way more computing power. So it's possible that there's a lot more room there. And I I understand starting with the smartphone because those are limitations that you don't want to have to work down to those. But I feel like if you could do so much more with it and turn it into a much more intelligent system, and I mean, you know, maybe that's just because what I really want is, you know, the USS Enterprise's computer at my beck and call. But so far, it doesn't seem like it's certainly not, you know, smart enough to have an intelligent conversation, much less make me a cup of hot tea. So I'm a little disappointed, but I, I would love to see what Apple could do with all the resources afforded to it by Siri on the Mac 
Uh, maybe that would convince more people to use it. I don't know. Thank you all for weighing in, though. Georgia, what topic have you brought for us today? So my topic we're going to be discussing in one minute each is about net neutrality. It's been all over the news and with different governmental bodies speaking about if we should have an open system like we have now where all data is treated equally versus other governmental bodies such as Merkel who spoke out about having a multi-tiered system where certain uh, data packages would be given preferential treatment. And my question is, why does it matter and why should we care or should we? I think it matters because this comes to a fundamental definition of what the internet is and how it behaves. And, you know, the internet, the idea is that all all the packets are the same, all bytes are equal, everything just sort of passes along. And if you want to reach your destination, you just put it in the river and it will flow downstream and it will reach its destination. And once you start building pipelines uh, that are alternatives and you, you know, it's not... It's not a fundamentally bad thing. So when Angela Merkel says, you know, we want to have this so that we can guarantee quality of service for IP telephony and video chats and things like that, you'd say, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, I want to make sure that uh, my Skype calls get prioritized over something that can just happen lazily in the background. And routers do that now, right? The problem is that that in the real world, what's going to happen is there are going to be companies with a lot of money, like Netflix is going to come up and say, um, I need you to give me good uh, good uh, speeds. And what's, what's worse, the ISPs are going to do what they did to Netflix, which is turn their speeds down and say, your business is going to be ruined unless you give us money. And then the the competition angle comes in, which is what if you're trying to be a competitor to a big name? And the only way you can play in this space is by paying huge amounts of money to prioritize your traffic. You've suddenly put a wall up that unless you are uh, already in the game and you've got lots of money, you can't create something new uh, that competes because you now have to buy your way into traffic. And it goes against, it's just antithetical to the way the internet works. So I don't I don't dispute that the people who are against net neutrality have, have brought up some interesting points where it might make the internet better, but I doubt seriously that that's really their motivation here. So obviously, there there is turmoil in in Europe in Europe at the moment, but it, 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 the EU in April suggested uh, some new laws around net neutrality, so that it's actually happening at a, a high level in Europe. Um, obviously, the European Union can't really force a lot of this stuff on; it has to be adopted by each member state. But there, there is a proposal uh, that has been put forward um, and has been approved by Europe's Council of Ministers, which would mean that we do have net neutrality in Europe if they were adopted. So basically saying that ISPs cannot restrict uh, service or, or speeds to certain uh, companies, say like Netflix or something like that. And at the moment in the UK, all ISPs currently operate under a voluntary code where they promise to treat all traffic consistently. So I am lucky that I live in a country where we're a little bit more uh, progressive in this instance. And, there, and of course, the competition is a lot stronger here anyway. Um, we have mu- we have many uh, strong players. So net neutrality is important. And, and I hope that we are able to do it and set an example in the UK and in other parts of Europe that the US will be able to adopt because it is important that net neutrality exists. I wish it was called something different because I always stumble <laughs> over it. Uh, and it's not a very, it feels like a very vague term. And so I've, I got yeah. into a conversation recently with a with a, an acquaintance's father about it. 
and, you know, just trying to explain what it was. And they're like, well, I don't understand. Why can't you just, you know, why shouldn't you be able to just pay better money to insert, you know, ascertain or uh, ensure better service? I was like, well, but, you know, you want to maintain that level playing field for the things we're talking about, for competition. Uh, and I think the biggest factor here for the U.S. is that this is the way it's always been, you know, up until sort of more recently as companies are trying to sort of jockey for position and get better deals. Um, and it is worrying because I think you know, we're all concerned with it being sort of the first step on a slippery slope where if you can start prioritizing traffic and deciding this traffic is, you know, is fast and this traffic is slow, well, how long before you decide this traffic gets through and this traffic doesn't? Or this traffic, I want you to use, encourage you to use our service, you know, uh, if Comcast, for example, decides we're going to make a search engine and we want you to use our search engine. So we're just going to slow down Google and Bing and all those other places. <laughs> so, I mean, and in theory, you know, certainly you can make laws to, pre to prevent that. But you would think that all the people who are on the side of let's have less regulation, not more, <laughs> would, would sort of be opposed to like, you know, enumerating all those specific quantities and rather sort of having a more blanket appeal of like, look, let's just treat all things equally. Um, so I, I think it is very important not only to ensure competition, to ensure that little guys can can square off against big guys, but also to make sure that people, us as consumers and as users have access unfiltered and unhampered to all whatever we want to, you know, whatever service or site that we want to use. So uh, I'm less concerned, you know, sure, I want Netflix to have the best quality possible in delivering me my video, but that doesn't mean that I want my other services to suffer as a result. Yeah, I think that all of you made exceptionally good points. And I think that, um, you know, it's a really dangerous thing to let people have control of something that everyone uses because when you have control of it, you do have access to choose what gets out and what doesn't and what's easier to access and what is not. And unfortunately, once you give control up to groups, governments, regulations, it is really difficult to ever get that control back. And I think that, you know, letting it be free and open is better for everyone involved in the long run. And you're right, Dan, uh, it's a terrible name. And I always make, uh, you know, uh, what are your opinions on Nets? Well, I'm neutral about Nets. <laughs> I, it's not, not, it's not helpful. I, not net helpful. chaotic neutrality. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. Ooh. that we were already, so we've already improved it. I think that's our last topic. And that means it's time for our bonus topic. Because we always have a bonus topic, except when the show is very long. Um, this is episode 66. <laughs> uh, reminded me of uh, the, the famous U.S. Route 66. Uh, get your kicks on Route 66. Above the waistline, sunshine. <laughs> anyway, uh, what's a favorite <laughs> driving trip that you've done, speaking of Route 66? Uh, it could be recent, could be a childhood driving trip. Mike, uh, you, li you live on a small island. Um, <laughs> Can you drive anywhere there? Or do you just take the take a bus? There are no driving trips uh, that are domestic because you can get anywhere in a day. So it's kind of <laughs> there isn't anywhere. There isn't anything. Plus, I don't have a driving license, um, wow. so I can tell you my least favorite driving trip. <laughs> okay, uh, when, that's the other way when, to go. Sure. Merry Christmas, I, everybody. When I was a young, when I was a younger boy, uh, we went to Spain on a school trip, and we drove, and it took twenty-four hours nonstop on a coach, and it was by far one of the worst things I've ever done in my life. It was just horrible. <laughs> Nobody wanted to be on that coach. Uh, everyone was going crazy. Uh, it was not a fun experience. Uh, we got pulled over by the police at one point because, <laughs> oh, no. because the coach driver was in the wrong lane on a highway, and I, I can't. I think we were in Spain at that point, uh, and then they had to they had to switch driver because then that guy got in a bit of trouble, and it was a 
It was a whole experience. Mike, I can completely understand why you don't have a driver's license after that. <laughs> we took a we took a stop um, at a service station, and everybody went out to get snacks and stuff. So I went into the service station. I think I was last out, and when I came out, the coach was gone. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like Home Alone, but in reverse. Oh, <laughs> they no. driven the coach to the other side of the service station and were waiting for me there. And I don't know why they did that. Uh, so I came out and I was terrified because I didn't have a phone or anything. This was before mobile phones were a big thing. And uh, I thought that I was stranded in Barcelona, but they, I was okay. They did it to terrify you, Mike. That was the only It was reason. a subtle hint. Yeah, they're messing with you. Go, 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 go. <laughs> Dan, you got a you got a favorite uh, driving story? Yeah, I have actually taken two two driving trips across the U.S. and uh, that, those have both been really fun, occasionally terrifying, and you do kind of want to kill people by the end of it. But there's still it's still a great way to see the U.S., which of course is such a huge uh, huge country. So uh, I really enjoy driving across. Strangely enough, South Dakota not as boring as you'd think, or at least hmm. part of it west of the Mississippi. <laughs> Lots of pretty country out there. Nice, Georgia. So my favorite driving trip was was actually a moment in the driving trip. I went to a martial art tournament in Vermont, and uh, yeah, I won. Um, and on the way back, I, I have favorite weather systems because I'm strange. So fog is my favorite weather system, closely followed by lightning. Um, and it was so foggy, it was like driving through magic. It was just fabulous. So I rolled down the window to let the fog in. So I was like sharing the cloud with everyone. It was not like the iCloud. It was like a cloud cloud. And, you know, with my hands out, luckily we stayed on the road. I didn't think of that at the time. And I just thought this is like the most magical moment. Uh, my favorite uh, trip, probably uh, when I was a kid, we rented a motorhome and drove, to, and we did like Glacier National Park and Yost- and uh, Yellowstone, wow, and wow, uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So it was a it's a long way to get there from California through things that are less interesting. But then that that kind of uh, Wyoming, uh, Montana, it's a long, it's long way from Massachusetts too, Jason. <laughs> anyway, that's it. We have come to the end. It's so so short, but that's the beauty of Clockwise. It's also its curse. We are with our guests so briefly. Mike Hurley, thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure, guys. And Georgia Dow, thank you, as always, for being here. Thank you for having me back. We'll have to have you back again soon. (laughs) Thanks. And everybody out there, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Dan, it's been a pleasure. As always. And we remind everyone, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. Bye, everybody. Ciao. 